Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Feed the Ball Salon podcast presented by Golf Digest, a place for intimate discussions about golf course architecture. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and in Volume 7, I'll be with my partner, golf course builder Jim Urbina, talking to Bruce Hepner. Bruce and Jim have known each other a long time. They both began working for Tom Doak at Renaissance Golf Design in the early 1990s, and they shared time and car rides and dinners and design thoughts and who knows what else, on numerous projects around the country until each designer left Renaissance to open their own businesses around 2012. In Volume 6, Bobby Weed talked extensively about creating new courses and finding ways to make everything look right and work right. In this talk, Hepner is going to discuss how he goes in and helps existing clubs and courses maximize the golf they already have. And here's a teaser. It's not terribly complicated. So first, Jim and I will have a little chat, then we'll get into our fun and probing conversation with one of the best renovation artists working today, Bruce Hepner. So cue the music, and let's get going. Hey Derek, you know, we're, there's something about golf courses, and this is, there's something about how you present golf courses that are, that are important to me. And I believe that are important to Bruce Hepner, the, the gentleman we'll be having on here shortly. And this quote I, I take from Colt, uh, Harry Colt. And if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read it to you. I'd like to hear it. And this is Colt quote on inland courses, which are not in Heather country. It is desirable that fairway should be mown to as great a breadth as funds will allow, and that artificial sand bunkers should be utilized wherever side hazards are required. The greatest breadth allowed, that means open and wide to me, the greatest breadth. That's what Colt talks about in, 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 his, in his book, and that's how I believe that Bruce looks at golf courses, that how, that's how I look at golf courses. And, you know, that's the part that Sometimes people forget how the golf course is presented. And luckily, Bruce and I have have that same feeling when it comes to that. I'll be curious if we can get down that road with Bruce. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, that, that's, a great, that's a great quote that Colt is talking about how it's important to open up the vista and create. But he's also, also obviously, in, in that is he's talking about width, which yeah, has width. connotations of how you can play the hole. But he's also, you know, I think there's something in there talking about the presentation of how it maybe how it looks to the eye, what looks natural. You know, the, we are we have almost 180 degrees peripheral vision, so you can take in a lot of scenery when you're looking at a landscape. And if if you have a little narrow hole, you're kind of wasting all that all that that beautiful gift that you have. So opening it up does do something to the brain to stimulate it to to create this expanse of of playing area. And there's more to to conceptualize and, and more to more to to analyze from a playing perspective. And then I like that when he talks about side hazards and banking sand into, or when you need side hazards, use sand. It's just a it's a really interesting kind of an advanced concept. Way advanced. Should not and- be surprised, but you know <laughs> he, he nailed that. You know, hundred years or hundred and ten years ago. How come when I'm standing on the tee with greens committees and, and owners, I don't think uh, to tell them that we're going to mow it to the greatest breath? 
I say, can we open it up a little bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't have that language. But Colt goes on to talk about an open view, if you don't mind. And I quote, to achieve this result, it is best possible to create an atmosphere of large and unrestricted space, which is the most delightful contrast to the cramped and restricted streets and offices of a large town. If that doesn't speak of urban golf and how to achieve the result of open and unrestricted space, what a delightful contrast to the cramped and restricted streets. I mean, Derek, you're always talking about what we could do for golf in the urban setting. And if we get rid of all these open spaces in these urban settings, we won't have that delightfulness of being open and in the air and on a walk. If we continue to think that golf courses are somehow, these open spaces are somehow bad, I don't understand why you would want more cramped streets and more cramped offices when you could have open space. It seems like it should go without saying, doesn't it? Even, even on so golf simple. courses, and this is apt because we're going to bring Bruce Hepner on in a minute. Yep. And ever since Bruce left Renaissance Design, uh, I think it was around 2011, he's been uh, working almost exclusively in the remodel business and renovation and restoration, whatever words you want to use. So he's going into places like this, and I'm not, I don't want to say he's saving golf courses from, <laughs> from being turned into condominiums, but he's saving them from, from being restricted. Colt uses the word unrestricted, and that's one of that passage. By the way, Jim was one of my favorites. Um, it, it's everything. It just makes makes you want to go out and, and hit a golf ball in an unrestricted environment. You know, of course, there's hazards out there, but just that feeling of opening things up and allowing freedom and not being restricted. That's what Bruce and you do when you go to an old club and you see how things have grown in and trees have encroached and mowing lines have narrowed. And, you know, that's something that we're going to address about your methodology and how you both go in and try to get what, get back what Colt's talking about, that, that freedom, that, that presentation, the breadth, the unrestricted nature of things that don't need to be there. Before we do that, and before we bring Bruce in, obviously you two work together at Renaissance Design for quite a while. When did you meet Bruce and and what did you think of him when you first met him? <laughs> well, you know, he'll say the same thing about me. He'll bust out laughing. <laughs> but, you know, we he used to work for Ron Forrest, Forrest Golf Designs out of Philadelphia. And then he moved to Traverse City and began working for Renaissance Golf. And so one of the first meetings I ever had with Bruce was a golf course in in Evansville, Indiana, called Quail Crossing, and we drove down there together um, and, and spent time on the site in, in one of the most hottest times in my in in the country in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and we walked around, and I and I still have a photo of Bruce looking at the set of plans, and, and I'm, I'm I'm with him uh, 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 kneeling down in a, a cornfield. And it's like boiling outside, but we're getting ready to do this golf course. So Bruce and I spent time at Quail Crossing, at Beach Tree, 
at several golf courses. In fact, I helped Bruce do some uh, restoration work up in, in uh, the Boston area, West Boston, Westchester County. So Bruce and I spent a lot of time together, a lot of great stories, a lot of fun. You know, you want to talk about somebody that to, that makes the best day he can out of every day. That's that's Bruce Hepner, and and uh, it was never a dull day with Bruce around. And and you know, I've I always enjoyed his his thoughtfulness. You know, he was a believe it or not, he was a car designer. He designed cars when he came out of school originally. And and that transferred over to golf and, 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 and what he does now. And, you know, we we've we've spent a lot of time together, a lot of a lot of restaurants uh, at night together on the road, a couple or cervezas. And we have a lot of stories that we've enjoyed together. And, you know, uh, I'll be curious if 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 Bruce uh, uh, has that same if that he same wants, remembrance, if he wants to go on record. With it. <laughs> yeah, I doubt he, I, I doubt that he will. But we'll see. I won't deny it, nor will I encourage it. <laughs> I always wonder, like in these dynamics, these team dynamics, if if people are chosen because they have for certain reasons, for instance, was there something that, that Bruce could do that really impressed you? Like, was, was he known for shaping greens in a certain way or bringing a certain style of, of bunker edging? What was, you know, was there something that, that you would look at that and said, Oh yeah, Bruce was here. I could tell he did that. Well, he was, he was, it was his addiction to the nature, to the land. I remember him explaining to, to an audience one time, how we would chunk material, uh, would chunk grasses of material. This was back in 1995, 96, Derek, before it was fashionable to chunk. Mm-hmm. And chunking is where you're taking a, a pod of, of, of landscape from the natural landscaping and, 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 and porting it adding onto it to the it. golf. Yes, yeah. adding it to the, to the golf course. And I remember Bruce explaining that, how important that was, that that, that was a dynamic that, that we both embraced. And I thought, you know, Bruce's ability to bring nature into golf and, and make it look pleasing and, 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 and natural, you can't, you can't study that in a book. You can't read that in, and, and have a professor talk about in the, that in the classroom. And Bruce's ability to do that, Bruce's ability to shape, Bruce's ability to organize and, and, and run a job, very few people can do that. And I think Bruce does that as, as good as anybody. That's interesting you say that. I'm thinking of you at that time coming from Pete Dye school. Did Pete Dye ever do any chunking? <laughs> no. I didn't no. think so. It was, it, was, it was. Now, he talked about grass. He talked about grass variations and contrast from fairway to rough. Right. The reason I was sent to Old Marsh when I was out in Arizona, one of the things was talking about how he was building the bunkers. But he also wanted me to look at how they had treated the bunker faces with, I believe, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, a centipede grass. And then they were using Bermuda in the fairways. 
So Pete was always looking for a contrasting grass that Bobby Weed had mentioned in our in our discussion with Bobby. Contrasting grass. So he was looking for that. At PGA West, Pete imported a bunch of bushes and trees, uh, acacias, uh, I believe they were called. Yeah. And he wanted to give the, the, the PGA West a contrasting look with, with uh, grasses and, and bushes. And they became overgrown, and, and they've had to take out some since then. But Pete was looking for that, but Bruce was looking for that chunking, what we know as chunking, from from the native area just along the property line. And there's a difference between importing a look of grasses and, and contrasting bushes, as Pete was very good at. And then using what was naturally on the land and import it and and putting it on the golf course to 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 uh, liven up the look of of nature and and the naturalism that that we all enjoy. Yeah, it's just so remarkable to me. It always goes back to Pete. Something always goes back to Pete Dye. And as you're talking, always. I'm thinking about you know in in the 1960s at the golf club. You know he's he's adding these natural elements. He's pulling nature into the golf course, and it it may not be to the degree that renaissance design was was operating in the late 90s and and as we got into the the new century that so many people are doing is really making courses try to blend into nature and and doing chunking techniques and long native grasses um prairie grasses but pete was playing around with that idea you know 50 almost 60 years ago you know just innovating He was backyard. He was growing grass in his backyard. That's one of the best stories of all time. And so Pete was innovative in that way. And as you talk about what Bruce does so well, he's, you know, he's talking about bringing nature back into the golf course himself. You want to talk about, and I hate to digress. I hate to digress, but I'm going to. I think you like it. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure of it, in fact. It's all we do here is digress. (laughs) Here's the here's the thing, you know, Bobby said talk about Pete Dye on his shoulder. When I went to do the golf course at, at, at Apache Stronghold in Arizona, you know the first two things I did? I bought a field guide to the plants of Arizona. And then I visited three arboretums in Arizona, the one in downtown Phoenix, and then two on the way to Globe, Arizona that they have on the side of the highway. Because I was trying to to understand the native area I was about to work in. And so I thought the book was important, the field guide to plants of Arizona, and stopping in and walking around arboretums. Now, if that's not somebody telling me you should be doing this, there's no book that says in golf course design that you should stop at the arboretums and check out what the local landscape you're about to work in is all about. But that's what I felt was important. Maybe that was Pete Dye on my shoulder, or maybe that was just a sympathetic way that I'd look at golf courses as being natural, much like the Lynx lands of Ireland and Scotland. And I think that Bruce does that well. I think we all have that knack to blend the environment into the golf course as best as possible. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jim. In that one statement, that kind of sums up the evolution of architecture. If you think about trees, and we're, I, I have a feeling when we get to Bruce, we're going to talk about trees a little bit. In the in the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, people loved trees. They planted trees all over the place. 
But what they often didn't consider what trees were native, what trees would be natural in that environment. So I'm sure sometimes they did. But you see a lot of uh, conifers and evergreen trees planted because they grow quickly and they provide shade and people like the way they look, I guess. But a lot of times they weren't of that region or, you know, that, so that's a really interesting point that you bring up in that there's more of an effort to make the golf courses the essence of, of their ecosystem and not just stick, you know, <laughs> palm trees in a, in yeah. a golf course where they don't belong. Um, so yeah. I think we're going to, yeah. <laughs> six, six palm trees wrapped around the back of a green. That's, that's very natural. Right. Right. You see that in nature all the time. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> I didn't stop at the palm tree arboretum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm ready to go. Let's yeah, go. I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> I am ready to go. Let's let's bring all in right, Bruce and go. and you know we're wasting all this great material, aren't we, Jim? Between the two of us, <laughs> let's quiet. cut this I'm off and, and get straight into Bruce Hebner. You ready? All right, here we go. Look at that beauty. Oh, wow. What do you call that thing? That's called Fender Stratocaster. Fender, yep. Classic. You see a number of those back there. Jim, look at you. I want to see the books, and I got to zoom on Jim because I want to see books in the background. Can you zoom on this? (laughs) Yeah, you can. Look at that. It's a bonnet. Nice. Uh, Books. Books. Uh, <laughs> <get them all. laughs> that was awesome. I'm a member of the old dead guys society. I know. <laughs> You're one of them. <laughs> I'm an honorary member. Now for yeah, a while. I, see, I see you have your old Tom Morris shirt on. I got my links off. <laughs> Where's your wall of fame? That's what I want to know. I took it down. My wife hated it. Oh, what's that? Jim, Jim had... Every he was pre selfie selfie. Jim had a picture of him with every famous person, probably not me. And he had a, it was called the Wall of Fame. Like who's famous? Who do you know that would? Everybody. It was just an excuse to put you on the wall, right? <laughs> I'm Jim Rabina. I know. Oh, Classic. Only he would remember that. Oh, I remember everything, Jim. So. I hope there's an edit button in this thing. <laughs> oh, you think hey, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you no, guys are doing. I definitely want to have you back on and hear you guys talk about you know the way it was and what's going well, on. Gonna be a little, there'll be a little laughing going on, so I'm sure of that. <laughs> well, that's funny that uh, you talk about laughing. How many things that we did are still uh, prosecuted by law? Do you think? <laughs> have we passed that statute of limitations I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm pleading a fifth on that one <laughs> Jim and I roomed together I don't know how many years Jim and I were always roommates together uh, I know how he snores he doesn't I levitate snore. I levitate <laughs> I cannot imagine what that must have been like those early I'm days like, he we used had, to call was, me Fred Flintstone I would come up <laughs> off the ground <laughs> and I'd go back down he levitate. I'd go back down <laughs> <laughs> One thing we just, we always had fun, you know, exactly. the work was serious, you know, working for Tom, but we kept it light and the, the laughs we had at Pacific Dunes between him and Brian Slonick and I at dinner every night was hilarious. We were up to shenanigans like you wouldn't believe, but that's kind of the tone you set to do great work. If everybody's happy, great things happen. You know, we were lucky, Jim and I were lucky and working for Tom, we had some great sites 
And then we also had great people. So, you know, the work, if the work sucks, <laughs> life sucks pretty bad, but uh, most of, most of our jobs were really good. And then we also controlled, you know, Jim and I nurtured the talent and the vibe of the fun, the creative talent and, and freeing people up. And, and, you know, we always had a ball. It was always fun. And you know what, Derek, you never knew who it was going to come from. Oh and, God. Yeah. And, and you, you want to talk about people who want to be in the business, the, the designers, architects, builders that we've always been talking about. There's a story, there's a book for every one of those guys who contributed uh, that studied at famous Ivy league schools or wherever you want to talk about it. And then there's the glens of the world uh, in beach tree, uh, Baltimore, Maryland that Bruce befriended and, and allowed Glenn and his, and his friend to be a part of the golf course construction You'll never hear about those guys. Never. Is Glenn the right name, Bruce? The Glean Machine, baby. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn worked in inner, inner city uh, Baltimore, and he worked on the construction crew for us. He was really good in a skid steer. And I had him, he, he called it, he'd be smoothing the bunkers out. He didn't know they were bunkers. He was just smoothing out like these big cavities. And one day, Jim and I are in the trailer, and I had one of um, – I had a book of all the uh, great courses of Australia, and I, and I showed him a couple of pictures of uh, Royal Melbourne. <laughs> and he just went, you're putting sand in these things? You know, it was, it was that innocent. And, and I took him out in the pickup truck, and he was going nuts. You know, he just – he wasn't a golf guy, but he had extreme great talent and passion. And we, you know, we had the best time with him, and he wasn't even a golf guy. And those are the unsung heroes of our projects, you like Jim says, you never know. You know, we, we had plenty of interns from Ivy League schools, and most of them are, you know, pieces of crap. You know, ended up being, you know, they they didn't want Jim and my job; they wanted Tom's job. Right. We struggled <laughs> with those guys. You know, they show up with a camera and a golf clubs and their Bobby Jones slacks, and Jim and I go, "Here's a shovel. See at the end of the summer." That's the it was the unsung guys. Well, he didn't pay didn't too much know. for those pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's the unsung guys that Jim was saying that that you find, you know, I always say it's amazing if you can tap into people's creative energy, everybody has it. You just got to learn how to tap it and spark it. And it's, it doesn't have to be a golf guy. It could be just somebody on the crew that carries it through and makes, and makes those details. Great. Jim, you were that guy, weren't you? When you started working for Pete, you're the, you're the Glenn. I was the Glenn. I was the, I can't remember the guy in uh, in um, Evansville, Indiana. That uh, he he, we had a brand new Sand Pro, and I told him, you know, you bring the Sand Pro out, bring the fuel out, be ready to go every day. And he lost the key. And I said, Well, where's the key? He says, You don't need any key. And he stuck the screwdriver in the <laughs> Sand Pro and started it. And I'm like, How did this guy know this? So Bruce and I walked over to his truck. He's got a screwdriver in, in his ignition. And that's, that's how he started his truck. <laughs> I'm like, who needs a key? Just carry yeah. a screwdriver around. A key. Talk about a clash of cultures. The, the, uh, the haughty golf course designers building expensive leisure activity. And then these guys who from the, from the other side of the street, you know, how to hotwire cars. And that's the story you never get, Derek. You always get the 
photo of Bruce pointing in the distance with his plan. I've never gotten that photo. I've never <laughs> gotten that photo. With his tie and his, 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 fancy, his loafers. Drawing, you got to have, have a, a roll-up drawing and point. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've made sure that's never been taken And about me. six guys standing behind you. <laughs> but the guy with a screwdriver that could get the Sampro running, uh, he didn't know about the plans. And he didn't know you were supposed to point, but he knew how to start the Sampro. And he, he was there every morning. So yeah. that's what you need to build golf courses, Derek. You need guys to be there every morning. It's a dirty job, right? It's a dirty, dusty job. Yeah, it's not easy. You know, you're living in the middle of nowhere, and it's hot, and it's brutal. And it's, it's, it's hard building golf courses. You know, it's hand labor, and the conditions are terrible. It's not green grass. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's getting these guys excited. You know, Valley Nail, it was 115 degrees in the sand. Oh, exposed sand this summer. That was hot, you know. And the guys, we, the interns would go back to a house in Holyoke that didn't have air conditioning. So it's, you know, but they all think it's some of the funnest times they've ever had because sure. we kind of create that culture. And Derek, the culture about energy and, and, and fun is what you have to have. And the reason Pacific Dunes turned out so good is because we had a lot of good energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I likened it to all the moons in alignment. And, and that was the big joke all the time. When all the moons were in perfect alignment, things were going to happen and, and things were going to be good. And from, from Bruce and, and Brian Slonick and, and all the kids, kids, Derek, kids yeah. helped us build that golf course. It turned out the way it did. Now, was the land applicable to what we did? Absolutely. But you still had to build it, and, and that's the part that, that you, you can never tell. The, the book is not big enough to tell that story. Yeah, I imagine working at Pacific Dunes on that particular site probably had a lot to do with the good energy that was flowing around. It's pro- hard to have oh, wow. bad days when you're there, you know, and you know you're working on a, you know, one of the greatest sites that's ever been developed for golf. Well, it wasn't easy. You know, it poured rain the whole time, and it was free. You know, we built that in the wintertime, so the, the sand wouldn't blow away. You wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you hear the rain just pounding on the on the shingles. You know, like, oh shit. And we all get in the the, uh, the woody Jeep. We all have our Healy Hansen outfits on. We smelled, it smelled like mold. Tom's shoes are in the back. <laughs> Tom's shoes, he lost his shoes. He goes, Where are my shoes? And I go look in the back of the woody and pull them these, they grew fur on them. You know, and that's the conditions. It was so wet and so nasty to be out there, but you know, you're building you're building Sistine Chapel basically out there and uh, it kind of kept you going. You know, Bill Cora often talks about being at Sand Hills and everybody, you know, assumes that what a great job that was and, and how fun that must have been to build. And he always says, no, it wasn't. Like the, the pressure, the conditions were hard and the pressure to, to get it right because it was such a great site was astronomical. So it was like a very, very stressful job. Did you feel that same feeling at Pacific Dunes? You knew there was a chance that you could, you may not maximize the great potential of that place. I think definitely, you know, that was like any of those jobs and started at that job because that was the hot first great, great job we worked on. And then, you know, you knew the pressure, you didn't want to screw it up. You know, I've always told people we screwed it up less than anybody else, you know, <laughs> and, you could, and, and luckily Tom let us, you know, Tom has such a great sense of uh, uh, appropriateness that he wasn't, you don't, you know, if you, I always say if you swing too hard at the pitch, you're going to pop up to second base, but you swing easy like a golf swing, it's going to go out of the park. And Tom, Tom understood, uh, you know, 
he knew what he was building there mm-hmm. and it kind of reflected on us. And we weren't, we didn't knew not to try too hard because if you try too hard, you're forcing it. And we just let it happen. And, you know, Jim led us through all that. And it was just, uh, it was great fun, but yeah, it was pressure. You knew it. And you know what? Uh, sadly, Derek, uh, sadly for us, uh, the Bandon Dunes golf course had already been built and it had been built to, and been uh, critiqued, golf writers like yourself came out there and said, oh, Band of Dunes is, is one of the marvels of all time. And so now we're going to have to build another golf course that already has a neighbor of such high acclaim. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that wasn't much fun for me in the beginning, but I can tell you as the golf course started to evolve, uh, I, I said several times to people, anybody who wanted to listen, we got a chance here. You know, we got a chance to do something really cool. But Banded Dunes had already received a lot of high, high marks. And so that was tough being the second golf course in. Bruce, what did you think of Jim the first time you met him? Did it take you long to hit it off? What was the, like your, this guy coming over, I guess, coming over from Pete Dye, you know, he's not Ivy League, so, you know, he wasn't that kind of jerk. But, what, like, what what was your yeah, impression? Well, you know, I kind of think the first time I met you, it was because Tom, Tom, you know, Gil had left. You know, you know, I think it was Gil was still with you guys. He was going yes. over. He was yes. going over, over, over look at old head. Jim was doing Charlotte. Then, yep. Jim, then Gil left. Then yep. Tom pulled me in to kind of fill his void. So Jim was already with, with Tom for about a year, like maybe less a year when I came in on. And then I'm trying, it must've been a road trip somewhere. Was it like down to Evansville or something like that? I'll tell you the exact road trip. It was a road trip that we stopped at a golf course you were consulting at in Ohio. Family Family country club. That's right. And we were playing golf with Duke Kahunahana (laughs) and we were playing golf on a golf course that Bruce had, had, uh, was consulting at and we went out and played in the evening and this Duke, uh, James, James Duncan. Duncan. Thank James you. Duncan from I Park could Park not Park. think of his name. He was our intern at the time. James Duncan. <laughs> I thought you said Duke Kahunahana. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's what was his That's what was his nickname. <laughs> so wait, is there a story behind that? No, he was, he was, he was, uh, what, from Denmark, but he had a British accent and he was a tall, lanky, really smart guy at a master's degree. And very highbrow, and uh, but he was it had a very uh, heavy English accent. So we call him the Duke for some reason. Yeah. Used to be jerks. Hey, Duke, what's going on? Get over here. And so we were playing <laughs> golf, and when when uh, James Duncan would approach the ball to swing and hit, he would hesitate, and he couldn't pull the trigger. And I finally said to Bruce, "Would you hit that effing ball?" And, and, and <laughs> and 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 James Duncan pulled away like you know don't bother me man I'm in a rhythm here yeah. and Bruce and I we play golf like about at, at su- a supersonic speed and Duke was like he couldn't pull the trigger and I just would every time I go here we go, here we <laughs> go. take an hour to hit the ball no disrespect Mr James Duncan no disrespect he was he was pulling a Sergio he just couldn't pull the trigger but it was a hell of a golfer and, and he was fun to have around so. So we were driving from uh, we were driving from Traverse City through Findlay, Ohio, down to Evansville, Indiana. That's how the first road trip I made with Bruce. And that was the first and, we worked on. We were building uh, 
Quail Crossing. Quail Crossing. Yep. So Jim and I were roommates down there and kind of tag teaming, um, you know, watching that job. So yeah. that was fun. Yeah, that was, I remember that. I still have the photo of us kneeling in that cornfield and it, oh. it was like 147 degrees. No, it was uh, soybeans because I can still smell it today. <laughs> Man, it was hot. I always say Evansville was the birth of humidity. There's some kind of factory there along the Ohio River just pumping out humidity. It was so damn hot. Oh. But it was one of the first golf courses that Bruce and I worked on together. Uh, yeah. And the creativity, uh, some of the coolest things that you'll ever see, and I still remember them today. Bruce, uh, Jim and I talked about this, and I think in our last podcast, uh, in reference to to Gil Hans, Gil Hans was on, and talking about kind of, you know, Gil's on a hot streak right now. He's getting a lot of good jobs. He's kind of the go-to guy in a lot of situations. And I asked Jim what it was like at Renaissance in the early 2000s, like really after Pacific Dune hit, I'm sure, when that was, that's what you guys were on. You were getting great properties. I'm sure you're feeling a lot of uh, phone calls, inquiries, uh, renovations are, are coming in, great properties all over the world, really. What, what was that period like in your memory because as as you you and I have talked about before, prior to like the late '90s, this kind of middle '90s period, it was pretty threadbare at Renaissance. You guys weren't the Renaissance that you would later become. It was a struggle. What was it like when you finally hit it and going from wondering if where the next job's going to come from to being like, "Holy cow! Look at all this! Look at all these things we're involved in." Yeah, it was. It was definitely a uh, embarrassment of riches. It seemed like you know we were. You know, when Pacific Dunes came out, Tom, the phone was ringing off the hook and Tom was, we were out looking at all kinds of, we, he'd send us all out and kind of recon projects, but it, it, it was pretty exciting. You know, it, it was, we were pretty much building three at a time. You know, one of Jim would be on project, I'd be on project, Mead would be on another project and we, you know, we'd all jump from project to project to help each other out wherever we could. Um, but it was, it was quite a run. And Tom's still on that run here. He's still got mm-hmm. Brian, Brian, and Eric crushing it. You yeah. Know? So he hasn't slowed down. He it slowed down a little bit, but you know he's got a bunch on the docket that are unbelievable coming up. Um, but it was just great excitement. It was a big team. You know, we had a lot of guys. You know, and we we're bringing guys on. We brought on Schneider. Then Eric came on board. You know, we nurtured Slonik on the way through. So we had, you know. A, I remember we were at the Renaissance Cup at at, uh, at uh, Cape Kidnappers, and I was driving in a cart with John Ashworth. And John's, if you've known John, he's a cool guy. He goes, man, you guys are like the Stones, and you're like Keith, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I just started laughing. Is that a compliment? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I wasn't mixed, so that's all I counted. <laughs> but, you know, I got it. You know, it's we better. Were, than, it's we, better than your your Charlie Watts. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Hey, Charlie. What do you mean by that? It, uh, if you know John, I, I understand what he meant. It's like, man, we were on a roll. You know, and we had a had a team going and everybody's hitting their stride and, and uh, you know, they still are. You know, those guys the you know, the guys that were below Jim and I have come up and taken our place and those guys are killing it. Um, but it was just a great you know, Tom had started, and then Jim and I were nurturing this creative process of, of bringing young people in. And we had large crews of young people, interns. We always had interns there. And I always said the creative process was, you know, Tom's the great editor. He'd always say, give me something. And then Jim, Jim and I would say, tell the young guys, give us something and, and just open their minds and, and, you know, 
my famous saying is, I don't care what you do, just do do your best and don't worry about somebody coming by and editing it. So, you know, self-conscious shaping is awful. You know, learning how to shape in front of Tom, you got you to gotta release that because, you know, you're a little nervous in a bulldozer or a piece of equipment and Tom's staring you down and, you know, giving you the look like, come on, you know, hurry up. Uh, but you learn how to shape within that and just do your best, free your mind. And it's amazing what you can do when you're not worried about it. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the process from top down. Just give me something really good to look at. I'll edit it. And we filtered that down even to the guys just edging bunkers. Like, go ahead, edge that. But don't worry about it. You know, do your best and then don't fall in love with it because somebody is going to come by and tweak it a little bit and make it better. And the key is not falling in love with any of your work. And we've had plenty of shapers over, over the years that, you know, we brought in. One at, at Beach Street that Jim brought in. Uh, that was in love with his work and we had to slap him down pretty hard. <laughs> Tom, damn Tom approved the first green he built. And I looked at Jim, I'm like, Oh shit, we created a monster here. And we approved nothing, you know, and all of a sudden he got really cocky. You know, you just got to get these guys in the right space that they're enjoying it. Don't worry about it. Just build us your, your best rendition of the information we've given you. And we'll come by in layers and edit it. And you'll be amazed how great it gets. And that's, that was kind of the cool vibe we had going on. And even before Pacific Dunes, Derek, we didn't get a bunch of calls. We were interviewing for a lot of things and and professing that we could do the best job that you'll ever imagine on your property. We just didn't get that chance. And the beet trees of the world and the quail crossings of the world that we did have a chance to work on when times were lean, we gave it the same effort that we gave Pacific dues, but we just never got that chance early on. And it is hard to get work. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it is hard to get that work, but we still had the same passion. We still had the same energy, but it took a Pacific dunes for people to realize that, Hey, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. It's just elbow grease. You know, it's hard work. Keep It's hard work, passion, and paying attention to the details. And that formula carried on until to this day. And that's why, you know, we've been successful. Tom's group, uh, Gil, I was just with Gil the other day at Oakland Hills, hanging out, drinking beers with those guys. And it's just passion, hard work, and detail. And Coors the same way. You know, that's why they've all kind of, the cream is rise to the crop only because, it's not rocket science. It's just hard work and, and paying attention, you know, not and, mailing and, and, and as Bruce said, paying attention and making sure that everybody that's along with you for the ride have the same intentions. You got 20, 30, 40, 50 people that Bruce and I and others are managing as you're building these golf courses. And you got to make sure everybody's on the same page. Cause if they're not, then things aren't going to work the way you want them to do. And that's the hard part. I would say it's like, it's, you know, when you're building the Sistine Chapel, the one guy's laying a brick, one guy's building a wall and one guy's building a chapel. We tried to get everybody to know they were building a chapel, you know, even at the lowest, the lowest wrong guy down there in the, in the bunker, Jim and I would be chatting those guys up as we're walking around and firing up. It's like, Mm -hmm. Hey man, I know it's a shitty job, but, you're, you're, it's like Glenn. Glenn didn't even know he's building a golf course, but he's he was shaping these floors of these bunkers and had the passion. 
we just, you know, you're just trying to create that kind of energy. And, you know, Derek, you can't read it in any book, although, you know, Bruce and I are, are come from the old dead guy society. You can't read a lot of this, this detail work, this construction work in any book. It doesn't tell you how to do that. It doesn't tell you how to connect with people. And that's one of the things I learned with Pete. Pete treated the shapers like everybody else. The shapers were no different. The guys who raked with the bunkers and the greens were no different than the owner, respectfully so. And Bruce hit it on the head. He said, everybody's the same. We're all here to build a chapel. Let's let's get it done. You know, Bruce, when you were talking about the cream rising to the the top, and Tom, Gil, Bill Coor, maybe David Kidd, um, yeah. they all work the same way. And when you were, when you talk about that, it, it, and I've said this before, I think I might have even mentioned it to Jim recently, is that in a way what what they all are doing is also training clients or training future clients. You guys are talking about training the people on the crew who are building the golf course. But as, as potential developers and owners see the success that these courses are having and see how these great products are turning out, they're going to want to build more golf courses like that. And they're going to under, try to understand how those golf courses are built. So in the future, when somebody has a great piece of land, they're going to come and talk to somebody like the people we just mentioned to build it. So I guess my point is, it's an interesting shift in architecture right now, because we might get to a, a day when people with really good pieces of land are not going to consider, I'm just going to use these people as as names like a a nicholas anymore you know that that firm we're seeing that a little bit with arnold palmer we had thad Leighton on they're shifting and getting into new kinds of bills because arnold palmer's not there that name doesn't carry there's a time when clients and developers would hire architects because of their name it would help them sell property or, or sell memberships and i think we're just getting to that point when that may be less and less of a of a factor we may really get clients who are trying to get a different product and to get to that product they're using people who you know aren't putting things in plans anymore you know i'm just wondering if the whole industry is gradually shifting more toward an organic way to build golf courses because clients are being trained through all these great courses over the last 20 years that they're seeing and all the success that that they're having now the i don't know how tiger woods and Bo Welling build, they probably do some kind of combination of, of plans and mm-hmm. improvisation in the field. That may be one where, you know, Tiger's going to get hired because of his name. But it's just an interesting time when when the way you guys have had built golf courses and still will if you get new projects, it could be, you know, that could be the, the way the industry goes for the foreseeable future. I think, and, you know, the, the big thing is it's going to be economics. People don't realize our golf courses costs a lot cheaper than a lot of people's, you know, what, what was Pacific Dunes was maybe two, $3 million, million, four million, four million, Three you know, point where eight. But your typical Fazio project was 15, 20 million. Yeah. Nick was Nicholas was the same thing. And, and, you know, during the second wave of the projects Tom was getting, they were, some of the clients were, had already built golf courses before for 20, $30 million. And they're saying, well, you know, I'm going to get Tom Doak to build me or bill, uh, to build me a golf course for five million, that might be actually better. Right, and I get to pocket fifteen. Uh, I can do the math on that. So you know, originally 
like probably in the eighties and nineties, you know, there was rich guys. They didn't give a shit if they were spending $20 million. They were collecting them. You know, it's like collecting clubs. It's probably a badge of honor. Yeah. I spent like, more than you spent. a bunch of guys sitting around the, um, you know, the grill room either at Augusta or at uh, Pine Valley, you know, well, I got three Fazio courses. Well, what do you got? You know, mm-hmm. and you know, that that's not flying anymore. And it wasn't flying in the, you know, in the 2000s um, that we were actually still building golf courses quite cheap. You know, it, they weren't cheap in quality, but, you know, Tom understood, you know, changes are, are, are made in the dirt. And if you don't move too much dirt, uh, luckily we had sandy sites, so we didn't have to bring materials in. So, you know, when you build a golf course on a sandy site with, uh, you know, the biggest cost is irrigation, that's it. The rest is just shaping. Uh, it, the price comes down quite a bit, um, you know, less than $4 million in a lot of the golf courses. Correct. So, Correct. Um, I think in the future, economics obviously is going to have a lot to do with it. Um, granted, most of the projects that are going on now are boutique golf courses that they're, you know, they're picking Bill, Bill Gill, David, Tom, you know, switch next. Yep. You know, and they're getting all the projects and most of those projects are, St. David's in um, you know Ireland or up in Cabot or somewhere like that or Sand Valley. Um, there, there's the pro- new projects are so far a few between. They're more boutique or destination places. So um, I don't know where the future is. I, you know, hopefully it's not expensive. But you know, when you're looking at some of these renovations that are twelve to fifteen million dollars at Marion or Oakland Hills or wherever. I don't know what, where that's coming from, you know, but that's, I think those are geared for having tournaments and U S opens and stuff like that. You know, they're putting precision air, you know, they're putting a six foot vault next to a green so they can blow hot and whole cold air up the rear end of a green. You know, that's, that's a lot of money where Jim and I are doing renovations for a minute. You know, I'm doing renovations for a million three. I just going to ask you doing, Thirteen million dollar renovations. Yeah, that, that, you're not you're not installing sub air systems in in, in your projects. No, no that's, <laughs> they, don't, they don't belong in mine. But um, you know, rightfully so. If they want to have a U.S. Open, then um, you know, on a Thursday afternoon, it's pouring rain. They want to play golf on that day, and that's expensive. So somehow they they justify that three million dollar cost for precision air. But even that is still like. ego driven. A lot of is, is it? I mean, if you're if you're in that upper crust of clubs. Yeah. You don't want to spend well, less money on it. You want to spend, yeah. I mean, do you want yeah, When Marion, you know, Marion spent whatever, who knows, 10 to $20 million. And it's basically the same golf course. You know, they just gutted it, the substructure and put it back and spent that much money. You know, it's, it's, it's just as good as it was before as it is now. It's just, they're lighter about a lot of zeros. <laughs> you know? Not sure they're going to miss it. Uh, Derek, a lot of the things that Bruce and I do when we restore golf courses is very cheap to do. Uh, Bruce and I believe that the mowing presentation is one of the most important things. That costs nothing. That's mowing grass. That that cost to do that presentation is relatively cheap. And so the things that Bruce and I are looking at as far as uh, how to make your golf course play uh, more entertaining, more fun, more strategic. The simplest thing you do is, is how you mow and present it. And Bruce could call me a liar if he wants, but isn't that so simple? 
That's the, the first thing I do in any course. If, if I always tell people, if I fix your mowing lines, which is expanding the greens, expanding the approaches, getting the fairways out to the bunkers, and fix your trees, you know, manage your forest, I probably restored 85% of your golf course to where it really needs to be. And mm-hmm. if that's all you do, and I actually have some clients now, that's all I've done. And I'm like, I've done my job. I'm out of here. This is awesome. You know, that, then you do that early on, you're really restoring the golf. Golf is in short grass. It's in the air. Um, it, it allows you to run the ball up. It's expanding the greens out to tuck those hole locations. That's where the design is. Bunkers, bunkers are bunkers. They're subjective. They're, they're there to make the game interesting. But whether it's a ratty bunker in the right location or this uh, really um, you know, pretty bunker in the same location, they're still bunkers. You know, so the last thing we usually do is the bunkers. You know, we always tell clients if you have to rebuild them and they're they're in disrepair and they're falling apart and they're hard to maintain, save your money. But let's get the mowing and the trees done first, and then if you never come up with the money, the golf course is eighty five percent better than it ever was. And that costs nothing, Derek. Relatively speaking, yes, landscaping, thinning out of trees. That <clears throat> has, there is a there is a debt to to doing that, but compared compared to adding 4.5 miles of concrete car path to your golf course, that mowing and landscaping that Bruce talks about is you could do that on every golf course across the country. And he just, Bruce just said, it's 85% better already. How simple is it though, to, to just mow out? I mean, can, is it as simple as, you know, you have a, a, a narrow fairway, it's 30 yards wide and you want to get it out to 45 yards but it's rough. Can you just mow the rough down or does it have to be conditioned? Does it have to be resodded? Same with greens. If you're working on pushing the original putting surface out or reclaiming those, those edges, it's not quite as easy as just mowing, is it? No, it's one knowing where the line needs to be, you know, know, where your expansion, where the paint line needs to be to make it work. Then after that, it's a lot of it has to do with the superintendent has to do with the kind of grasses there. Correct. A lot of times the fairways, it's a poet bent fairway, the rough, within the first 10 feet of a poa bent fairway is poa bent bluegrass. And just you can waiting just, to be mowed down. Yeah. You can just scalp it down in layers yeah. Yeah. and eventually that stuff will come up. It might take a, you know, I always tell clients, I'm like, it's going to take three to five years to get your greens out. If you're just scalping them out where you're going to tuck the pins because you're just, you're scalping, you're overseeding, you're top dressing, you're airifying, repeat, repeat, repeat until it's seamless. Same thing with fairways, but I've also done it a million different ways where you've actually cut out the sod, put new bent grass sod in or poa sod in. I've seeded uh, expansions. Uh, we've, we've airified the fairways and pushed the cores to those areas and let those grow in. Um, so there's a million ways to do it. It's all about, to me, it's all about how fast the members want it to be Perfect. You know, the slow, that's probably the best way is still scalping it, like Jim says, scalp it down, overseed it, airify it, top dress it. It takes a couple of years to get rid of that defined line of that edge of that new fairway. Uh, it's playable. It's just the look of it. Some places they want to just kill it and seed it. Some places they want to kill it, strip it, and sod it. It's just about, uh, it's a lot about the, the existing superintendent and what he's comfortable doing. And a lot of it has to do with the membership. So I've, I've done it a million different ways. 
And I continue to learn to do it different ways from superintendents. New Seabear in Cape Cod last year, we rebuilt greens and he, he took, he airified all the greens, took the cores, spread them around the new green, and then seeded on top of that. And he did that almost in November. And I just saw it two weeks ago and it's, it's puddable. Hmm. It just came back. And then the beauty is it's the same kind of grass species, which is a hodgepodge of the other greens. Correct. So it's, Correct. it's infusing something, you know, ultimately when Jim and I restore a golf course, you didn't know we did it. It's seamless, in, in, including grass type, um, you know, the shapes, how we build a bunker to make it tie in. You know, ultimately the, our, the ultimate compliment is that nobody knew we were there. Correct. It's just like, wow, this place is awesome. Correct. Who's and the was oh, it was yeah. Willie Park Jr. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not Bruce Hebner. No. Willie Park Jr. And Derek, we rely on the superintendent to help us out here. Yep. And unfortunately, most memberships have about this much patience. They, they want it to be perfect tomorrow. And it's going to, it took them 60, 70, 80 years to get out of whack. But when you, when they bring you in, they hire you to put it back to, 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 to the best of your ability. They want it done in like a week, a week and a half. And so the, the, the process, the, the superintendent is under the most scrutiny. He has, he knows that he has to perform. He knows he has to have this turf in an optimum condition, but Bruce is right. Be patient two to three years. Uh, we've done it all different ways. Uh, cores like Bruce talked about, uh, CJ Penrose at Sankety Head. We just lifted the sod, did our work, put the same sod back down and used uh, the putting green to supplement areas so that the grass looked the same. One of my pet peeves, I, it might be Bruce's pet peeve too, is that you see new grass imported into old grass uh, species. And you see that line forever. That's one of my pet peeves. I like flipping sod. It makes the golf course look like we were never there. It's the cheapest way to do it. Some people say it's not. But we're, our goal is to make it look like we were never there. It's the highest compliment. I'll ask both of you this, but I'll start with Bruce. What project have you worked on where just by doing what we're talking about, just by expanding out the fairway, reclaiming uh, grass areas on a green, which project had the most dramatic before and after simply through grass lines? Or maybe there's a, there, maybe there's more than one. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, it's, it's amazing how you can train. When you transform, when you get on the mowing right, I tell people it just looks perfect. There's nothing stands out. It's, it's like when you, when you expand a green, I always say it's like grabbing a sheet. When you pillow a sheet up and land it on or a tablecloth on a table, and it just lands on there and it hugs the contours, that's when you get the mowing right, you know, the, the size of it. So uh, some of the most dramatic. I was just at, um, I was at Belvedere Club up here in Michigan uh, yesterday. Old Willie Watson course. Tom uh, Tom Watson's a member. They've had the Michigan Amateur there. It's it's like the hidden gem of Northern. If you go to play Crystal Downs and Kingsley, Belvedere is always one of the clubs you play. And some of the best green shaping I've ever seen. It was done on that golf course, but it, until we expanded the fairways and the chipping areas out, it made all the contours come out of the ground. And uh, I just toured it yesterday with the new superintendent. And I always marvel when I go back. I'm like, man, this is pretty good. You know, the mowing's pretty good. Um, 
but that that's a great example. You know, there's tons of them and Jim's got a ton. It's pretty much every course we work on when we expand those fairways out and the chipping areas and the greens. Uh, it's quite dramatic. For me, Derek, it's the Valley Club of Montecito. Yeah, that, that's great. That first go in there, if you just saw the saucer bunkers that were there at the Valley Club, and again, bunkers are bunkers. I mean, you can you could lay however you watch the importance of them. But the Boeing presentation at the Valley Club back in the middle 90s when we did that really transformed the look of the Valley Club, mowing only. And then on top of that, subsequently, we did the bunkers. And then I went back and had to do the greens. We cored them out and did them in USJ greens because they had had a, a severe salt damage. And so the mowing lines at the Valley Club really transformed the place. And then everything after that, Bruce just described it. Then you start working on the greens and then you start working on the bunkers. But the Valley Club for me was that first transformation. Then right after that, going up to Pasta Champo, setting those mowing lines based on an old 1929 aerial. Derek, we didn't invent the mowing lines. We just studied what the old black and white mowing lines told us. And then we convinced the membership, this is what you're missing. If you recapture it, you would have more, more fun, more strategy, more playable area, a breadth of width. Right, Derek? A breath of width. That's right. Yeah. And now, like, it's it, it's funny. You get a little pushback from the good players because they think narrow is harder. And uh, I always tell them, no, wider is going to be a little bit harder because the ball rolls out of position. It might be a wider a wider playing field, but, but it's also not a defined playing field. You know, if you play the first hole at Royal Melbourne, it's about 100 yards wide, and you have to be in a 20-yard slot to have any shot at landing on that green so it's 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 the illusion that it's wider but it's really isn't you have to really define your point and the point is not defined and i get a lot of pushback oh you're just going to make it easier by making it wider i'm like no where do you see and uh, essex county club up in boston is a great example they have the great four ball essex four ball tournament all the great clubs of the country play in it and the golf course after we widen it widen the expansions Balls rolling into positions they never seen before. It was two or three strokes harder per round of golf just by expanding. So it's the beauty is, I think Don Placek coined this from Renaissance because the, you know, it's harder for your good players because the ball rolls into positions and also gives them a, uh, that line of charm to be aggressive a little bit more instead of just hitting down the middle of the fairway. Um, that a person that used to shoot a, a 74 is quietly shooting a 76. It doesn't know why. Right. Because the greens are expanded. The tin, pin is tucked a little bit more. We're suckering him into t- being a little more aggressive. But the person that used to shoot 102 is now shooting quietly shooting a 98. Doesn't know why. Because their ball's alive more. You know, they're, the greens are bigger. They're still three putting, but the, they're landing and they're keeping the ball alive in short grass more. And the end result is faster play for all of us. More interesting for your good players because they're getting challenged by being put in positions and angles that they're not used to, and they have to start thinking their way around the golf course. And your high handicapper is just getting around and having a ball. They don't know why. They're just having more fun. And the approaches are open. They can run the ball in. It's just a win-win for everybody when we truly restore back to the original designs, like Jim was saying. 
and it's more forgiving for the golfers that are uh, not as advanced in the skill. Yeah. So what if I hit my fade, Bruce? That's a fade, Bruce. It's not a slice, by the way. When I hit my fade, it just kind of nestles. I'm still in the fairway. Or somebody who tops the ball and and and, and blocks it to the left, uh, they're still in the fairway. I, I still have an advantage. It's for much more forgiving. And so I think it's a win for everybody. But Bruce is right. Good players will immediately say you're going to make the golf course easier. And I always tell them, oh, you want it to be harder? Yeah. You really want it to be harder? Uh, go ahead and stand up in front of the committee and say, I want this golf course to be harder. Go ahead and say that. They never will. Yeah, and the good thing is what you're describing, Bruce and Jim, is those high handicap players who are shooting 102 after a year or two or three, they're, they're never going to go back to 102. You know, they might yeah. even get better. They'll stay at 98, but that, that 74 player who's now shooting 76, he'll eventually get back to 74 or 73, but he's going to have to do it by thinking and, and, yeah. and figuring out the golf course and be engaged in a way with the architecture that he never was before. He'll learn yeah. not to shoot for those, those new corner pins that you've put in. He'll play for the middle of the green. Uh, so it's a learning process. You're kind of educating golfers in architecture. Yeah, all, all golfers, you know, it's a win-win for all golfers, all spectrum. And you're kind of bringing them all towards the middle of having more fun. You know, the scores are kind of getting towards the middle. Um, but it's it's forcing the good players to get smart. Like you said, it's like, hey, you know, I, I've never heard of anybody say, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm opposed to it being a little bit easier for me. <laughs> you know, even good players, they're always worried about the guys are playing. Yeah. I fight that battle with the good players all the time. Well, you're just going to make it easy. I'm like, for who? Well, you know, they don't tell you it's the guy they're giving two strokes to. You know, <laughs> they're always looking out for the other guy, but it's really looking out for them. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> it's pretty easy to sniff these guys out. And every club I'm at, the club champion generally gives me the least amount of information I need. I can figure him out pretty. You know, rightfully rightfully so, he's very selfish because that's how you become a really good golfer. But I can snuff those guys out in a heartbeat, and it's kind of fun to twist them in the wind a little bit. <laughs> it's who you make it. It's always well. Somebody told me, or or somebody said, or they say, who is they? Would you tell me who they is? Well, it's never. They can never pinpoint it, and maybe they don't want to throw them underneath the bus. But it's really every golfer looks at it at the golf course about them, and Bruce and I have to look at it at a golf course for four hundred of them not just one of them. That's right. So everybody hates you, at least to begin with. <laughs> or everybody it's part of the entertainment. It. It's fun. I, I just, it's part of the sport now, being an architect is dealing with members. I, I know. I know it. And, can be in, and, and having a good, listen, Derek, don't make, I don't want to make it sound like I don't listen to people because I do. I understand the golf course has to serve everybody, seniors, players, the junior players, the best players, the women, the men. It has to serve everybody, and I try to listen to everybody. But if I let a few people dictate how the golf course should play and look and not prescribe to the restoration of what it used to be like, then I've done a disservice to the club. Bruce has done a disservice to the club. And so when they hire Bruce – they don't want Bruce to do what they want them to do. They want Bruce to do the right thing. And that's our job to do the right thing. So we talked about mowing lines and 
and Bruce, I, I love that. I love that. And analogy you made, you know, you've done 85% of the work by just adjusting mowing lines and clearing out some trees. It seems like you get satisfaction out of that because you're doing a good job and you're improving the golf course. But where does it, where does your engagement or your interest level rank when you go into a, a property that is, that really needs a lot more work than that? It's been modified over the years and you really do have to start rebuilding bunkers, replacing bunkers, shifting things around, maybe pouring out greens and, and doing something different because it had been modified over the years. Isn't that sounds like that would be more entertaining if that's the right word to use for what you guys do. I don't know. You know, it, it's, I hate fixing other people's mistakes. That's the last thing I want to do. You know, I wish everybody did good work, but a lot of Jim's and my work of rest, restoring is correcting modernism of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where architects, kind of came in saying, well, I'm going to modernize it and I'm going to make it better than the original version, which would have been of a classic nature. So probably one of my least favorite things to do is come into a golf course that's been butchered. I don't mind restoring, but it's fixing uh, golf holes that have changed dramatically because of, for some reason, they want to make it harder or it's not long enough. Um, I've done that and I'm, you know, we're good at that, but it's like, if I go to a golf course that had been completely neuterized by ex architect in the last 20 years, I probably have a little, a little less interest. You know, I, I love restoring golf courses and, and if you can find one that's all I have to do is fix the mowing. I'm really happy, you know, financially it's not great, but it's, I've done my job and I've fixed the golf course. So, but if I have to go somewhere and there's four holes, they completely suck. They're completely, you know, not have nothing to do with the original architecture. Um, you know, we're, we're good at putting those back in, but it's just, it's half of it's half discussed. It's like, Oh my God, I can't believe you. And a lot of it's the membership driven, you know, they hired architect X. We want you to make this harder and better. Okay. I can make it harder. So I'm going to put in a lake here and a waste bunker there or make it, you know, X number of yards longer it's not better. It's just harder. And so to kind of go in those cases, you just kind of have to, you have to choke it down a little bit and go, all right, let's concentrate on fixing those, get them back to kind of what those are, but let's concentrate on the original architect. And I have a lot of those lately, you know, where, you know, no, no golf course, there's hardly any pure golf courses out there that haven't been touched by somebody, you know, even, even Ross remodeled golf people's golf courses, even <laughs> Tillinghast did. So um, it's really rare to find that pure, that pure golf course. Uh, everything's been touched, but it's just how much they've done it. I just, I just get choked down the reasons why they, they butchered a few holes. You know, it's, it's, it is archeology. span It's going back and figuring out what I never judge them. I always go, why did you do this? What was your thought process? And are you happy? And kind of start from there. I would but, think that you know. that gives you the opportunity to ride in on your white horse and be the savior and, you know, fix the problems. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could think, I, I you can, but I, I, somehow I don't think that way. It's just like, oh God, I gotta that's fix not you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, man, I wish I hadn't screwed up these holes. Cause this is a pretty cool golf course. Probably at one time the aerial photo, you know, Jim says the aerial photos don't lie. Most of these courses, you know, the first version, I think I told you this on the last podcast I did with you. The first version of everything is usually the best version. Mm -hmm. 
just because the, the, the architects spend that much time on it, really figuring it out. And there was a symbiotic nature to the whole design. It was really in harmony. And then you, you know, then every time you, you take one of those holes out, it's now only 17 harmonized hole and one new one or four new ones. And so it kind of loses its, its balance. And some architects, you know, heck, when I first got into business, the thought process, well, if I do really good on this one hole, they're going to want to rebuild all 18. <laughs> you know, that's a lot, of, a lot of architects' logic. You know, they're generating work. Well, if I really do good and make the bunkers really cool on this one hole, even though they have out of context with the rest of it, maybe they'll like it so much, they'll do all 18. And luckily, some of the courses said, uh, whoa, Nelly, that was enough. <laughs> you know, but some, they keep going on. So um, it, it doesn't kind of turn doesn't pique my interest when I show up to a club in an interview and I see like, Ooh, what hell, what happened here on these three holes? Cause it's pretty obvious. And I look for continuity, Derek, when I go to a golf course, I could see the golf holes that as Bruce talks about that have been changed and modified, modernized, whatever term you want to use. And I simply say to the club, if you want this golf course to have continuity, we should fix these holes that were taken out of context. Three bad chapters in a book, uh, 10 minutes of a poor, poorly done movie. I, mean, <laughs> I just want to, because we always talk about that, Derek. We always talk about the chapters, the, the, the continuity. Right. I just want to get these holes looking like the rest of the golf course. And if I could do that, at least for those two or three bad holes, because some other designer came in and, and started to play and modify and put bumps and modernize and, and all. I just want the golf course to look and have that continuity all the way across the board, 18 holes. So it doesn't look like a polka dot dress uh, as compared to everything else. And so that's what I'm looking for to bring that back. I did a golf course in Chicago. We started a golf course in Chicago, an Allison design, which was, which was original Donald Ross design. Allison redid right. it. Is that bobbling? So ar- yeah. Ar- architects were doing it all the time. Bruce is right. Tillinghast went around the country during the, during the depression and he was fixing everything. And so who, how did well, he fi- have Fixing is like, one way to put it. Well, yeah, he, he was eliminating bunkers. Depending on, on <laughs> what he was doing. But I mean, Taking a living. Who is Tilling has to decide what's right and wrong. But in the sense of what Bruce and I do, we believe, we believe that the original design, as Bruce said, was probably the best effort that you can get. And that anything after that would just be a bad sequel. Mm -hmm. And so all I'm trying to do, I believe that Bruce is doing the same, is we're trying to bring that continuity back to a, a really good design. Is every old guy's design the best ever? No, no. I will never say that everyone is – because Donald Ross did it, it's going to be the best golf course ever. Can't say that. Tilling has, can't say that. But the ones that we have a chance to work on, the Sankety Heads, and, and I, I went to – the golf course up, I helped you a little bit up in Massachusetts right across the bay. Uh, Essex. 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 Yeah. I mean – you don't get many Essex of the world and you with all due respect should give its respect that it deserves 
because Essex deserves to be restored to the best of your ability. And not every golf course is going to give you that. But the Essex of the world, the one I helped Bruce on uh, do some shaping for him, that deserves to be preserved to the best of our ability. And so that's our job, preserve, restore, uh, recapture. And, and not every golf course deserves that, but a lot of the ones that Bruce works on, a lot of the ones that I get to work on, they deserve that. Bruce, I'm, I'm still struggling with your position a little bit. I totally respect <laughs> it. And, you, and, and you've said this before, and I, and, and I admire it. You know, you're very content to do uh, the you know what what you what you do and hopefully the least amount that you need to do to get it to get it right but it just seems to me like if you went to like Inverness for years and years had these holds that were poorly matched to the side and Andrew Green went in and and reconfigured it and tied it all together to do what Jim did that seems to me like you have a chance to right a wrong you would you would want to do that if you have such respect for the original version that that it seems like that would be a perfect situation for you because you can erase all the mistakes and and recapture this this thing that didn't exist because it had been altered i don't mind doing it you know i'm good at doing it we're good at doing it it just when i go there i'm like yeah yeah i've i've been to inverness i was there at the 86 pga so i i know i know the fazio holes and i know the ross holes and it just kind of like oh you know it it breaks my heart when I go to a, cl- a client and see that I know how to do it. I know how to fix it, but it's still kind of like. You're, you're too empathetic, Bruce. You're too empathetic. I, I don't want to make a living fixing people's mistakes. I'm going to make a living doing good work. You know, luckily Jim and I were spoiled. You know, we, spoiled. We, 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 we got to work spoiled. on, you know, arguably some of the greatest courses that will be built in a long time working for Tom. You know, he had a pretty had a pretty good run, and we got to be on that. So we're not we're not our creativity was was pretty well done. You know, focused into that. We built some pretty good. Yeah, shit. you've been to the top. Yeah. So, but now there's not. You know, Jim and I aren't getting those jobs anymore. You know, so we're out doing this. But I think that's our passion. Is like we don't have to make our name. Uh, creating new stuff uh our name's good at restoring things and if we have to restore four holes i I just did that at woodway in in connecticut you know i had to fix four i had to fix four pretty bad holes or holes that have lost their way as i told them Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm good at that um it's just not my favorite thing to do but uh it's part of it If if that's what it takes to get like jim says the cohesiveness back i'll do it and i'll do it passionately but it's still i wish I wish I didn't have to do that. I wish all I had to do was fix the mowing, rebuild the bunkers, do the trees. But when I have to fix other people's architecture, that really is kind of... We'll talk about the the greatest fix really happening or happened last few years was Pinehurst number four. Would you have wanted to do something like that, take on that? Well, that was that was a fix, you know, because that's a brand new golf course. So that's not Yeah, like, it wasn't restored, oh. but it was a, a, an erasure of arguably a mistake. Yeah. On a grand scale. If somebody's going to give me a great piece of land and some soil and it's on a a marginal golf course and say, start from scratch and build me a new golf course. Yeah, I'm all in, but our phone ain't ringing on that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'd do that. But, and it was a great opportunity for Gil and he did a great job, you know, but he's applying. That was more like a new job for him. It was, you know, so. And I, and I can honestly say that I, I, 
if I was given a chance to, to you name the golf course, Derek, say, Jim, we think you could do a better job than what's here. I'd have to look long and hard to say that I could do a better job given the land that I was given. Because not every land was perfect. Not every land was conducive to a good golf course. They were put out there, and I, and I can't wave this magic wand and, and make it happen. I have to have something to work with. Gil had something pretty good to work with, and, and he made the best of it. You're not going to get that all the time. You're, you're going to give – You'll be given a, a, a swamp land or you're going to be given a golf course that, that is flat or whatever it may be. Some of these things can't be fixed and they should be what they are. Right. Yeah. There's a, um, a I'm I like making them the best version of themselves. That's a lot. You know, I, I don't work. All my clients aren't top hundred. I got a lot of them, but some are kind of B level, C level of the clubs. And I'll go in there and go, you know, I just want to make the best version of what you have. I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to make a, 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 a three on the doak scale an eight. You know, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but I can make it a four or five just by applying general principles. Just, you know, fix the mowing, you know, get the trees out of the way. Uh, maybe make, maybe, maybe making the bunkers more interesting um, or more strategic and walk away and you've just made a better golf course. You know, so that, that's satisfying on its own. And Derek, sometimes you just have to know how to say no. I yep. can't help you. And I've done that. Uh, I've done that several times and saying, I'm not your guy. Yeah. I, I'm not the one that can imprint a vision uh, on this golf course that you want. I, I think you should try somebody else. You just have to say no sometimes. And, and I've had a couple of those and I'm thinking, I can't help here. I can't do what they're hoping can be done. Maybe somebody else can. It's just not me. I don't have that that uh, uh, that ability to spend that kind of money to fix those things, and I don't want to spend that kind of money to fix those things. Yeah, it's interesting to think where we'd be in architecture right now if if more designers going back through time had said no more often. You know, yeah. Everybody well, Tom says yes. Tom always he always says Pete told him don't be afraid to say no or walk away. I always have that. You know, Pete always had the leverage. I'm walking. You know. If you're going to, if you're going to, we're going to go down a wrong path and I think I'm against it, I'm out. And I've, I've quit a few clubs mm-hmm. and they hired me back, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not afraid, not afraid at all to say, man, this is not, this isn't happening. Yeah. This is not what I want to do. And somebody else could, Derek, I'm not saying that somebody else couldn't fix it or fix it the way they want it, but I walked a property in, in Long Island uh, last fall and, and, just by talking with the people that I was interviewing with, I, I just had this sense that I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the right person for that job. And so I, I just, I was out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's okay too. And if somebody else does it, I wish them all the best, just not me. A lot of what you're talking about, the both of you doing these projects is removing trees. Is it always obvious, Bruce, that the trees that need to be removed I just, always is a big. I don't mean always, but is it is it often obvious that the trees that need to be removed were trees that were planted at a later date or at some course through time, or is it often just yeah. the trees that were there naturally from the very beginning and they've just gotten too big? A little bit of both. 
Uh, most of the bad, most, you know, the, the massive amounts, you know, say you're going to, the massive amount of trees that you take off a property were ill-planted. You know, they, they, people don't, you know, I always tell people when I plant a tree, I'm visualizing its maturity. It's a 50 year old Oak. And I have to know how, how the wingspan of an Oak is. If you plant a tree right next to a fairway, now it's just a little whip, a little whip in 50 years, that fairway has got to move 30 feet. Um, so it's, Planting the wrong, either the wrong species uh, in the right location is one bad thing. So it's the wrong species, or it's the right tree in the wrong location, or it's the wrong tree in the wrong location. Right. So, uh, it's one of the, one of those three categories. Um, so I look at it um, first agronomic trees when I look at a golf course. How do we fix the agronomy? It's usually around the greens. It's shade air circulation, moisture. So you try to open up the, you know, the, the morning sun on a green, uh, if you possibly can. So you're looking at those big picture and I blame as much on agronomy as I possibly can. Um, cause then I can just point at superintendent when they yell at me, that was his idea. <laughs> um, but you know, then it's design trees, you know, of just a poorly planted tree that's grown to the point where it's really affected the golf shot. Um, you know, you read Ross's book or any of those guys say, you know, they, I have a bunch of quotes about trees from all the great architects. Um, a, a, a tree shouldn't affect a properly executed shot, you know, that kind of stuff from the fairway. So you, you, the second wave is the design trees. And after that, it's just opening up um, uncluttering. You know, they might not be in play. They might not affect agronomy, but they may open up a vista somewhere a view across the golf course. Yeah. You know, we had, we had that mentality in the sixties and seventies. I would say, you know, save a whale, plant a tree, you know, the ecology movement. So they're planting trees all over the place and they lost sight of how beautiful a golf course could be or the site that they were looking at. I was like, look at me, I'm playing golf. I'm on my own golf hole. You know, the elitist attitude. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see a golf, the golf course. I just want this hole to be mine. I don't want to see anybody else. I'm more of, I want to see the other guys playing shots. I want the vistas. I want to see other green sites. I want to see the the overall landscape, just not this tunnel vision. Right. So I work, you know, the last thing I do is, and people don't even see us doing this because the trees are so far out of, out of the way is opening up vistas, you know, open up gaps and tree lines. So you can get a, get a look at And that also helps with the air circulation too, in the end run. Right. Like at Timaquana, you can get back there on it. I don't know if it's number 12 or 13, there's one tee back in that corner where you can see, God, I don't know, you can see like eight or nine other holes, you know. Pretty cool. Yeah. You never saw that before. Mm-hmm. And we're, hey, we're Bruce, more trees Bruce, Bruce, do you think that trees or greens are the most emotional part of restoring a golf course when you, when you want to af- affect some change? The best thing you do is restore the greens. You know, that affects golf. Yeah. Trees are more, uh, so it's not effect, uh, expanding a green is not emotional to a member. You're just tucking it. You know, when you expand a green, they don't even know you did it. Right. You know, they just, all of a sudden there's these new hole locations, but general people don't see visually can't see expansions. Once they're done, they don't remember what they were. Right. But, uh, if, but they'll, they're emotional. They, they can grab on, they can hug trees, you know? Yeah. Uh, but if a properly managed forest you won't know we did it. 
because everything is such in balance. I always tell people I can take the most important tree that these tree huggers think on that golf course out, take it out at midnight, sod it. And I can make a lot of money the next two weeks because they won't even know it's gone. You have to tell them it's gone. So if, 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 if you do a proper forest management, people don't notice it because everything, the forest is in perfect harmony with everything else. Yeah. Healthy tree, the specimen trees that you left are healthy. There's not half trees and nothing's cluttered. Explain half trees to, to, to people. I don't think they understand what they mean by half trees. Well, when you have, when you have a, when you, when you have a cluster of trees growing together and you have five different species, the only thing that really grows is the edge of that growth, the outside branches. So if one tree dies or a tree on the edge dies, the tree next tree in has only grown halfway up because it, it didn't have sunlight and the, the branches aren't growing out. So, so it's deformed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's lopped off already. So it's like Jim and I know that when, you know, when we, when we built new golf courses and we had to cut corridors through beach tree was a great example. Thank God they have beach trees Could beach yeah. trees in the forest do, they don't go grow in halves. They, in the forest floor, they're fully crowned where pine trees or oaks might get kind of pushed around a little bit. So when, when I did the clearing lines at beach tree, I kept all the little beech trees on the edge of the for- new cut line. You just didn't have this wall of new trees when we had to cut a, a hole through a forest. So you, you look for those immature trees or mature trees are full scale to be the edge of your new forest. So it looks like it's always been that way. It's a new, Derek, new clearing. And Derek, tree management and clearing of a new golf course, you know, Bruce hit it, the nail on the head. You're looking to see what tree is going to be the tree, the iconic tree as it starts to mature because there's a bunch of half-grown trees, deformed trees, and, and, and all you want to do is manage that. And, and Bruce hit the nail right on the head, managing those trees. It's, 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 it's Jim and I keep harping on. We want it to look like we've never been there and the golf course has always been there. So if you manage the forest correctly – it doesn't like look like new growth or, or, or old growth. It's just look like it's always been there. You know, everything's in balance. It's all we're always trying to get perfect harmony of visual landscape. And if you want to read about it, Derek, Dave Otis, a guy that Bruce and I both know, did a great story for the USGA on trees and how, what happened and, and how this process started. If somebody wants to learn about that, they should look uh, Dave Otis up. USGA tree management, and he did a great story on yeah. how, what happened and what you're trying to do to recapture these specimens that are on these golf courses. Bruce, you mentioned a little while ago about you know this state we're in, and I think you said you called it or boutique courses that are being built now. How how hard is it to get uh, to be in the renovation world doing with you guys? How hard is it to get jobs? Because it seems like, you know, everybody's flooded into that business now. Some of you guys have been doing it for a long time and have, have shown your expertise. Yeah, I'm losing jobs because I'm 60 now. It sucks. You know, <laughs> I, I know I'm more qualified, but like, well, you might not be around a lot longer. That sucks. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of guys. There's a lot of, a lot of our interns, you know, Jim's and my interns are in the business now and they're doing good work. Um, so there's a lot, you know, it's crowded. 
it's crowded, but you know, I always, you know, I don't know if it's like a self-defense, but I'm like, well, if I didn't get the job, I, I didn't want to do it anyways. <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah. Anyways, it's probably denied. This place is lame anyway. But, you know, luckily I'm pretty busy and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm looking for one, maybe two clients a year. Um, so I don't, I don't have to compete that much. And some of the jobs that are coming up are, um, you know, just a lot of my jobs now are just like, I'm just going to fix the mowing. And you don't need to rebuild your bunkers. They're fine. You know, that kind of a deal. Um, so I, I, I'm doing a lot of those, but I still have, you know, the Corona's kind of put a lot of things on hold. I've got, I've got some projects getting moved around in, in the next couple of years. And I, this fall, I either have two projects or zero. Um, who knows what's going to happen with that. But uh, luckily I'm pretty busy and I don't have to be out there fighting that hard, but there's a lot, it's crowded. There's no doubt about it. Hey, Bruce, do you want to be remembered as a, as a, as a guy that revered old dead guy designs, or do you want to just be remembered as a guy who, who, who worked on all types of golf courses and did the best he could do? Yeah, that's it. I just thought, you know, I think it's like, Hey, I was fair. I had a lot of fun. I did good work. And, uh, and that's it. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm just as happy to work on the, you know, a D level club right now that I know I can fix. Yeah. It's kind of fun. You know, it's like, all right, not, it's not a top hundred. So it's not that my pressure, but I, um, Hatherley country club in Boston, not too many people know about it. It's in the South shore of Boston. I don't even know who the original architect is. We, yeah. we can't figure it out, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, 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 the, the superintendent has been build, rebuilding the bunkers over the last few years. It doesn't have a lot of money. It's got a nice membership, but it's, uh, uh, I'm like, you don't need to rebuild those bunkers. You know, keep, keep rebuilding them one at a time. Let me fix the mowing. Let me fix some treeing work. And it's really cool. It's a seaside setting, really firm fairways. They love what I'm doing. I'm having a ball. I'm not making a ton of money. I'm just, I'm fixing it with a little amount of time as possible. And that's just as satisfying as any job I've done. More than Blue Mountain on Wencia? Yeah, it's just, just as much. You know, those are a lot of work. I've been working on those places for 20 some odd years. And, yeah. you know, it's pretty cool. They're high profile. But this, this Heatherly is uh, it's just as cool a project. I just get as much satisfaction out of that. Because I've fixed the golf. Both I've fixed the golf at both. One I had to spend a little bit more money and time on. The other I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time on. Because it was my choice not to spend that much time on it or money on it. And it's just fine. Yeah. And it's pretty cool. And a lot of people don't know about Owencia, but I do. It's a great place to walk and play. The history is unbelievable. I can't imagine that you wouldn't want 10 more on Wencias, but I do understand the passion for, for helping even the, the, the clubs that, that don't get that fanfare. Well, that's it. You know, that's it. It's right, Jim. It's just like having fun. It's fixing golf. That's yeah. what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Luckily, we've made a living. You and I have been so fortunate to work on so many great projects for Tom and then our own renovation work. But it's to me, it's just fixing golf. Yeah. Doesn't matter. I guess, you know, I, I would love to get the, the calls from the Blue Mounds of the world uh, because you know how important they are. Uh, Leon Wencias of the world, you know how important they are in the history of golf. But, you know, I, there has to be something to be said about helping others. Uh, not as t- 
top 100, if you want to call it. Yeah, and being willing, you know, because the top 100, you know, it's crowded up there. <laughs> you know, there's a lot and a lot of good people doing it. Yep. And a lot of those top 100 courses are already done. Yeah. Or if they're not, they're doing 50, you know, $15 million renovations now. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know if I can stomach that. Yeah. But, I mean, working but at Wingfoot, you, you would have not turned down Wingfoot. You wouldn't have, would yeah. you? Yeah, I would have taken it. Yeah. You know, um, but there's there's plenty of there's 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 a hundred top hundred courses in the country. And how many courses are in this country? There's a lot of good ones out there. A lot of sixes, fives, fours that are worthy of working on. And uh, you know, not all of us have access to the top hundred courses. I certainly don't, so I'm not right. gonna play those. Right. But there's a lot of other really good courses that can be fixed with just classic um classic ideas infuse them into a a, a muni and it'll be just you know look at tom did at memorial down in texas you know that was a pretty good place but tom's made it you know playable and world-class for the tour players right overcooking the soup right do you think that we pay too much homage to rayner and mckenzie and 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 uh mcdonald and and colt and out do we? Do you think we pay too much homage to him? Do you think we could do better today than they did? Uh, well, we can do comparable work. How's that? You know, look at all the courses that you and I've worked on are in the top hundred right now. <laughs> you yeah. know, so, yeah. you can do comparable work with good sites and good owners and good right. talent. So we're just what we did with Tom and Tom has continued to do and Gil's doing and. Bill's obviously doing they're popping top hundred golf courses out there. You know, there's always a couple of new ones that they're like, well, that's gotta be a top hundred. Right. So, but they're, but what they're doing and what we learned to do is um, execute the same thought process, hard work, good strategic design, paying attention to the details. That's what those guys did. So we're right. just, we're doing it with better equipment, you know, excavators right. you know? and more talent. Yeah. And I could and I'm gonna beat I'm gonna beat Derek to this question that he's gonna be bummed because I'm gonna I'm gonna beat him to it. Scoop could, could Bruce Hepner go into any urban setting and make an average golf course worthy of everybody's respect to play without costing a fortune to build it? Yeah, you could. You can. There's a, there's plenty. You know, I grew up in Detroit. I, I grew up playing Rackham, a great Donald Ross course right next to the zoo. <clears throat> it got it got buggered up a little bit because they put a freeway through it, but I consulted after for a while. Um, they used to play all the Joe Lewis used to play there, and they had the Black PGA Tour events there. It's a great city club, and there's there's a, there's probably four other courses in the city of Detroit equally of value. It's just they've been run down, so you can get in there. And we'll look at what we did at Common Ground. You know, yep, yep. Uh, Common Ground is the greatest formula ever. You know, you can. You can get an inner city club if you have the land and make it the hub of golf. Yeah. I'm doing that. We're going to do that in Nashville. Really? There's a nine hole course um, that we're, we're planning in the works that uh, everybody learned how to play their first round of golf at it. Cool. We're going to fix it up. And then we're hoping to go to the next uh, city course and spruce it up to have an event. So it, there's, a lot of urban cities are seeing that, you know, that common ground formula and the smart golf people are, that's, that's a good future. You know, Tom did that at Memorial Park in Houston. So there's a lot of 
that's the untapped is those city parks, those municipal parks that were designed by Ross or somebody good. Uh, they've just been run down and bring them back and they could be the hub of golf where, you know, look at common grounds. It's like caddies. Uh, that's the game in town to play. It's the hub of Colorado golf association. That's the perfect scenario. It also seems and- like common ground did something that seems to be unique and also a key to its success. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I think Eric Iverson told me this is that they basically said, here's how much money we have to spend. We have, X amount of money, what can you do? Instead of the opposite, most projects, you send out a request for bids, people come back and they tell you what their plan is, and then they put together uh, a bidding sheet and everybody bids on it and you hear your cut, you're going to pay this. And then it's, then all of a sudden you're up at eight, nine million dollars. Yeah. It seems like if more, especially Jim, these like urban projects or these these smaller uh, places that, that have to do it, they should just say, here's what we have. What can you do? And it, when then you're making people be creative within within uh, a construct instead of just having it be open. And then, you you know, you're competing against the, the next company and you're going to try to do something better and then costs gets, start to get driven up. Why don't we see more of that? I, Crickets. No. <laughs> no, that's, that's, you know, they had, having a governor on you gives you constraints that you can work within. You know, we, in design, we love constraints because that kind of, molds you in a certain direction, whether it's a wetland. All right, we're going to avoid the wetland. We're going to go over here. Oh, we found bread of land over here instead of trying to cover the wetland. Any kind of little constraint that we find as we go, we wing it. And somehow it gets better because you're actually putting a thought process. So a financial uh, restriction is good too. And that's kind of what common ground was. Like, like Tom and Jim and the guys came up with the idea, well, what's, what's cheap architecture? Chicago golf club is pretty cheap, cheap architecture. You're rumping up stuff. You're not moving massive amounts of earth. You're rumping up greens. You're rumping up bunkers. It was a, a pretty cheap way to build some pretty cool architecture is that kind of quiet Rainer McDonald stuff. And it was cheap to build. Four million. And Derek, the reason why I hesitate every time on your question, I love your question about why can't it happen in every city and I'll say it again, Bruce, you agree or disagree with me. There's too many people in the way. Yeah. And especially municipalities. Good Lord. You know, talk about bureaucratic red tape. The only reason we're pulling this off potentially in Nashville is that we got, you know, we got some money behind it, you know, Tennessee golf money behind it to jump the municipality. <laughs> yeah. So we don't have to go through all the, the restrictions and all that stuff, the bureaucratic red tape, but that's the problem with, City Detroit, what a mess, you know, for years. Um, you know, just the red tape to get through to do something right. It doesn't cost much to do something right, but a lot of paperwork costs a lot of money. And Derek, over and over and over, I'll ask everybody, as you will, you just sometimes you just have to get out of the way and 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 let people who've done this before, a track record, Derek, a track record. Mm-hmm. He's going to go down to Tennessee. He knows how to do that. Got a track record. You know, not going to spend a lot of money, not a lot of, not 120 bunkers, uh, not elaborate uh, uh, fountains and waterfalls. Just not going to do that. Yeah. Not going to have 10 foot wide uh, concrete car paths. Not going to do that. And so when all of these things become uh, not required, 
The golf course is cheaper. It can be done. Derek, it can be done. Just got to get out of the way. Yeah. I think this this generation of designers yourselves, both of you and, and, and other people who are playing around with this idea, are starting to understand the ways to do it. Bruce, you mentioned the Tennessee Golf Association, the Colorado Golf Association here in Atlanta. You had uh, the Bobby Jones project, which is a wasn't the end result wasn't that great, but it was a it was a public private partnership. They did a land swap and some some private money came in and, and let it. So it's it's definitely going and going outside the municipal city governments and getting your financing from someplace else. I, I, that's got to be the the main way forward on these on these projects. And you got to have the right people in place in power. You know, the mayor has to be a golfer. You know, or absolutely. City yep. You, you have to pick and choose your time and strike it when you can. Because, you know, it can switch on the next vote, you know, the next ballot, <laughs> all of a sudden you got somebody that hates golf, you yeah. know, and then you're done. So it, it's, it's a fine line. And, uh, and those, those votes golf. can be bought too, by the way, you know, there's, yeah. there's city council members who aren't sure. <laughs> true. But, at, you know, that's why it's not happening all over the country. It's, it's hard to do, you know, but there's plenty of great product out there to do stuff with. Um, it's just being able to access them. Yeah. And as I said, Derek, open space. Would you rather have open space or condos and another strip mall and another uh, fast food restaurant? I vote for open space with a walking part of golf uh, 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 as as part of that open space. Yeah. And uh, in, the, in the times of city uh, uh, finances, and, and as Bruce said, Things can be expensive. You have the right people in place. Open space should win out every time. As we try to uh, kind of wrap this up, guys, I want to go back to uh, kind of the beginning of our conversation. And we've talked about golf properties. Bruce, you mentioned that you would often go out and Jim would often go out and kind of, if a, if a client called, you'd go out, Jim, you were the first person to see Ballyneal, for instance. You'd go out and kind of scout properties or see what the interest level was. Do each of you have a golf course or a site, a property that you saw that for whatever reason, it didn't work out. Renaissance didn't get, maybe the course never got built. Maybe somebody else got it. Is there one that got away that we did, we did the first routing and I actually mowed Aaron Hills. That's right. I've, I've heard, I've heard that Tom wow. was involved in that at the beginning somehow. Yeah, that, and that was, you know, I don't want to quote Tom ex- exactly, but it was some of the best inland property we'd ever seen in our lives. Mm-hmm. I remember mowing it for a presentation to, you know, uh, the first client we mowed out the golf course, part of the, you know, nine of the holes just to present like it was laying there, you know, all you do is just mow with a brush hog and present it. But um, the money failed a few times and there were some people in the golf industry, you know, we were of the thought, shit, it's just sitting here. Just mow it, seed it, irrigate it, get out of the way. And one, it was, it was like a, it was something ridiculous. It was like two million for the golf course, two million for the land, two million for the clubhouse, and stuff like that. And a lot of people like it's got to cost at least ten million bucks, you know, that kind of a thought process. So they persuaded some of our owners away from the owners thought we were nuts because we were just going to use fescue. And then different owners switched, and then uh, you know, Ron. Uh, <laughs> I remember being in the office when Ron Ron Witten called Tom and said we're doing Aaron Hills. I think Tom's quote was like, 
Well, the shark infested waters are deep and I hope, you know, <laughs> are cold <laughs> and deep. I hope you know that now, <laughs> you know, it was like, you son of a gun, you stole that from us. But it's like, and it's far different from what we had. You know, obviously Aaron Hills has had to been fixed a few times. Yeah, it's, it has a long Relevance. checkered history. Well, our version was, it was pretty cool. Like it was laying there. Probably the most minimal minimalism site we'd ever seen. And uh, it was almost too minimal that people didn't believe it. Kind of a deal. And that, I think we lost that one. And that would have been pretty cool because that was, that was a nice piece of ground. Was that more that because the ownership changed more than any yeah, reason why like you lost it? Part of an owner. So yeah. at the time, the original people believed in us, but they, they they couldn't quite quite pull the money together. And then the next one, I can't remember. You know, you know, one, I remember one of the clients. It might have been the current client, or one or when that hired him asked Tom, "Can you promise this will be on the top ten course in the world?" And Tom's, you know, Tom's like, "I can't promise you anything. It's great. It's the best inland property I've ever seen." But I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> And they found people that told them that say, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So yeah, then the, and the owner, the, the final owner wanted a U.S. open. So that, yeah, you can tell anybody, you know, as Jim said a long time ago, us being really consultants are actually telling you the truth, not necessarily telling you what you want to hear, but bringing you down easy and telling you what you need to hear. And eventually they love that. But some people, they just want you to tell them what they want to hear. And there's plenty of architects willing to tell you what you want to hear to get the job. Yeah. And uh, that was one of them. For me, the land that I often wondered what it would have been like was the land that was next to uh, Kapalua. Yeah. The, the land that was, there was a piece of land that was uh, next to Kapalua in Hawaii that I thought, wow, that would be special to work on. Uh, it never came to fruition. Uh, so that's one. I have another that hopefully may come back to to alive. I used to drive by it all the time on the way to work, and I thought that would be some special land to work on. And hopefully, hopefully someday it will happen. But there's there there is projects that Bruce walked. There's projects that I looked at. There are projects that never got off the off the ground. There's sand site in West Texas that I, that uh, we looked at and I'm thinking, man, nobody's going to believe they're in West Texas. And these sites are out there. Some will never get built. You always salivate wondering what it would have been like. Unfortunately, uh, you never try to get too amped up to get started because there's going to be something that's going to stop you. So uh, I, Bruce and I have both been through it. Uh, you, oh man, I could hardly wait. I could hardly wait. It's not going to happen. So, Archerfield, Archerfield, yeah. Archer yeah. I, I don't know how much time I spent on the Archerfield, which the thirty-six holes there. Yeah, I even left my golf clubs there because John Ashworth was part of the. You know, he was getting that one together, and uh, the la- I left my golf clubs, my luggage there. I was supposed to come back within a month to start the project, and the uh, the investor pull the rug out from John and they built that crappy 36 holes. Luckily we ended up doing the Renaissance club, which is next door to him. But um, that one broke my heart. How about anticipation for that, Derek? I'll be back. That's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Keep the <Nope>. oven on. <laughs> thank, God, thank God we built the Renaissance Club because we got to go back and fulfill the dream of playing North Barrick every night. So. <laughs> There's a mark. Jim, you probably noticed mile marker 50 going towards Ballyneal. On the left-hand side, there's a sand deposit. Yeah. 50 miles north of Denver. Yeah. I'm actually heading there Sunday. I'm driving out to Ballyneal Sunday. But um, there's a mile marker 50. And you look to the left and you see all these sand dunes. And like somebody owns a ranch there. And I always thought, God, if you could have built Ballyneal 50 miles from downtown Denver. <laughs> Wow. It would have been awesome. <laughs> Instead of three and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm actually told, driving out there from here. Well, so two days to get there. Call me. Call me uh, just so I could say hi to you. Maybe I'll, I'll come out to Belly Neal and meet yeah, you. I'll there. be out there all next week. I think you guys need to get in the car and take another road trip, hit some motels, just relive the old days, the early That's days. Fun. That's fun. Yeah, we from did fin- From Finley to, to, uh, to Quail Crossing. That was our first road Oak trip. Hill. He and I worked together at Oak Hill in Massachusetts. Oh, my oh God. man. Saw the WWF in our hotel. <laughs> you, mean, you mean wrestling? Yes, yes. They we were having still- breakfast, and there's like, I don't know who it was, but it was full of wrestlers. Yeah. All steroided up. Steroid guy. Oh, my God. It was I thought it was Mad Dog Bashan, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I remember Mad Dog Bashan. Rapid Ricky uh, something. I don't know. <laughs> Or Iron Bruce, cheek. yeah, <laughs> the Iron Cheek, or or uh, you know, all the road trips that uh, driving from uh, the Legends in Myrtle Beach back to Beach Street. That was cool. I, I drove a brand new car, uh, uh, Mister Doke, Mister Doke's brand new uh, station wagon. When I'm Bruce, dead. <laughs> I, I was driving at about a hundred <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I made sure I sat right behind Jim in the back seat because I didn't have to look at the speedometer. <laughs> I could see his Tom's dad's eyes were this big. Oh. <laughs> we got there in like about twenty minutes. Yeah, I love it. Car and was so shuddering the all the things, way. <laughs> those are the things that uh, we'll never get back, and and I I miss a lot. I miss yeah. the camaraderie uh, of doing those things with Bruce and and all those other guys. No all doubt right. about it. I stopped by Oakland Hills the other night, Wednesday night, because I had to build some bunkers at a club and brought $100 worth of beer with me in a cooler. Because <laughs> I knew Gil was there, Kai Golby was there, Ryan Farrow, and all those guys. Yeah. And, you know, Jim and I have been solo for 10 years or so. So we don't have that gathering of young people around us that much anymore. So we stayed there till dark drinking beer out there and, you know, seeing what Gil was doing, which is miraculous. He's doing great work, but just to hang out with the young guys again and, give kids on the crew shit, you know, and just mess with people and have fun. It was like, I wrote Gil a note. I'm like, man, I really miss this. This is the part of the, part of the, the band that we had at one time was, was a lot of fun. It didn't, you know, it wasn't so much working every day. It was dinner at the whatever bar that night was always just great conversation and great fun. Whether it's playing shuffleboard or pool or whatever, or just hanging out. Those are Floyd's and Bandon. I mean, it's the family, Derek. It's the family that you put together to create these things and you live and breathe together. And uh, I, I'll have to agree with Bruce on this. I miss that, that, that big family of, of guys uh, living together, doing golf courses together, crews, big crews. Uh, you, you don't get that restoring golf courses. It's not the same. 
I think one of the requisites for getting in this business or one of the reasons you get into it is to be able to give shit to your buddies and and take (laughs) shit to them. If you can't handle that and you don't like that, then it's a wrong business. It is nonstop. (laughs) Do you know how many times Bruce gave me a hard time about the music I played? He he knew that I was going to be a uh, jamming and he's what the hell are you listening to <laughs> but you see that's what i live what on was the music Bruce. what's your music oh my god he had a, he had an album of share songs <laughs> of share it was share and we, we love that we listen to that every night going out to the bars in bandon and we would just laugh oh my god I, you, I, this was not you were not doing that ironically, right? This was you actually. <laughs> Bruce uh, and Brian Slonick used to listen to this really cool old music. You know, Maceo Parker. Really, it was Macy yeah. Parker from uh, James Brown, right? <laughs> and I had to have this thumping music. That's how I ran the bulldozer. That's how I I created stuff. I had to have this. Uh, it had to shake the Woody uh, as we were going to and from work. <laughs> and Brian and Bruce used to just go, what the hell's wrong with this guy? <laughs> whatever, I guess whatever it takes to get you fired up. Yeah, you just flowing. <laughs> but it's raining. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Bruce. And hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Bruce, appreciate it. All right, be safe and travel safe. Right. There was Bruce Hepner and Jim Urbina, two old, old pals from the olden days, reminiscing a little bit and talking about what they both specialize in now, at least currently, is the renovation and restoration of old courses. And, and Hepner's really been rocking that field for a long time, Jim, and doing a great job. He does it as, as well as anybody. But I can't get past, Jim, this thing that he said about showing up to an old historic golf course that that has a lot of pedigree and noticing that holes over the decades had been changed and altered in such a uh, such an almost an offensive way we brought up the the case of Inverness where those four holes had been completely redesigned and have recently been returned to more of the Ross style by Andrew Green and Bruce said it when he sees that it saddens him or angers him or offends him so much that he doesn't even want to be a part of the reconstruction process of of returning those holes to their original glory and i just can't get past that if you're in your field wouldn't that be the the ultimate challenge the the ultimate honor is to be able to right a perceived wrong and to step in and to put things back in their natural order he didn't seem to want to have you know anything to do with that and i would think that that would be like one of the the objectives of somebody who's doing a, a, a renovation or a restoration. What do you, what do you, where do you sit on that topic, Jim? Well, you know, Derek, it's tough because I sympathize, I sympathize with Bruce and his, uh, his feelings towards that. First of all, you have to think to yourself, how did those holes get to that condition? How did they arrive at that, at that disjoint uh, uh, as compared to the rest of the golf course? And so is it worth going to uh, lengthy discussions to to not educate but to teach or or to to enlighten the committees or or the membership on what had happened and 
what could be brought back? Is it worth that time? And he said that it just saddened him. But you always have to ask yourself, Derek, is it worth your time and, and energy to, uh, to, to share what was there before, to possibly paint the, the, the picture that it could, these holes, if they were brought back, could be in all of their glory. And that's the part that I struggle with every day when I look at old golf courses. I enjoy re- reviving and reliving the old because I think it has a lot to teach us. And, for example, the St. Charles Club in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, has an Alistair McKenzie golf course, the only Alistair McKenzie course in Canada. And we are going to work to restore all, in all of its glory what what they had. And you could simply say, well, why don't you just leave well enough alone? It's hard to leave well enough alone when you have photos of Mackenzie standing on greens and in bunkers and showing uh, the history and, and the undulations and, and the strategy that was all a part of that. And I have the documentation that will allow us to do that. Can that be said for every club? And I sympathize with Bruce. Is it worth going to every club and saying, you know, uh, I, I can fix this? But in your mind, Derek, does everybody believe it's broken? And that's the dilemma that that uh, Bruce and I and a lot of people who who enjoy restoring the golden age designs. If people don't perceive that they're broken, then how can you go in there and tell them they need to fix it? If that makes sense to you, it does make sense. I guess I'm operating under the presumption that there's a reason that they've hired you. They know the golf course needs work, but you're right. Perhaps they just they just want it freshened up. Perhaps it was a, built in 1922 and it had gorgeous original architecture. It was changed five times over the last 98 years, and they like the golf course. But you know, they hire somebody to just do you know. The bunkers don't drain or uh, they need regrassing or whatever the problem they think is. And they just want whatever they have kind of dusted off. But then again, if they want that, aren't they, can't they get that from somebody else who isn't a specialist, who doesn't have as much uh, practice and experience with an Alistair McKenzie course, you know, with a George Thomas course. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm assuming that they want to get back to something that they've lost. But I guess I would say to you, you would have to determine whether the architecture, the original architecture deserves to be restored to use that word. Does the, if the architecture is worth it, I, I think it would be worth your time to fight for it. And that is part of my interview process. When clubs call me and ask me if I'm interested in visiting their golf course and, and seeing what they have and, and if I could develop a plan to help them uh, or guide them uh, through the next hundred years of their existence. And Bruce does that all the time. Bruce is very happy to help clubs enjoy and realize their full potential, whether it be, as he said, mowing and, and, and changing the grassing lines 
possibly uh, some landscape work, uh, some bunker restoration work. He's happy to do that. And, and, and clubs, clubs want some direction, some professional direction. Can I, can I say a quote from Tilling Hastett that generally guides me into thinking what Greens uh, chairmen's and Greens committees go through? Do you mind me uh, saying this quote? No, I don't. This quote is from Tillinghast, A.D.A.W. Tillinghast from The Course Beautiful. It says, and I quote, No course can thrive under various experiments caused by the differing opinions of a divided committee. The Green Committee must depend upon the signalness of one man's purpose. And after the chairman's term has ended, his policies should be carried on by his successor. The surest way to ruin a golf course is by an ever-changing policy. A new broom sweeps clean, end quote. Hmm. And so if you understand how these clubs got to where they were, ever-changing, as Tilling has says it, constantly revolving and thinking of different ways to approach it, then sometimes it's just not worth going down that road of restoration. Maybe the club sees no purpose in a restoration. Maybe a club sees the purpose in a renovation to rethink new ideas. So when I go to a golf course and somebody says, are you interested? I have to first find out if the committee's interested in finding out their soul, finding out their history, finding out if they love what they, where they came from. Because if they, they check all those boxes that they enjoy their history, they appreciate their designs, they know who Alistair McKenzie is or Donald Ross or whatever Golden Age design, and they like what they have, it's just a bit, a little bit inconsistent, then I know I can help them. But if a club, like Bruce said, if a club has gone down the road and, and considered uh, rethinking a new design, so what makes somebody think the new design four years later or another committee member thinks that well i didn't like what john did i I think we should do this that ever revolving door sometimes you ask yourself is it worth it but if the club has a good mission statement and the mission statement says that ellen mckenzie for example is their guy then i can help them if a club feels that their mission statement is to renovate and keep up with the standards of the day, then I believe that Bruce feels that he is not that guy and it's not worth that effort. And so if the club really dictates how the club will survive for the next hundred years, then you can decide if you're a good fit for that club or not. Yeah. And you mentioned that in our talk is that sometimes you have to say no and you've done it. You've said, I'm not the right person for this job. But then I go, I also go back to Bruce's, you know, it's either the 80 or 85% rule that he says that you can improve a, a, almost any golf course or at least an older mature golf course, 80 or 85% through tree removal and expanding mowing lines and and capturing lost green space. That's 85, 80, 85% of the job. And I would think that would apply even to a golf course that had been altered over the years. It it became one thing. It got something else in the, in the 1950s, something else in the 1980s, even that 
version of it could still be improved through tree removal and grass lines. Is that right? Absolutely. It could be improved. And, and Bruce does that very well. And that's why clubs call Bruce. That's why clubs call certain architects to help them recapture and find their full potential. Because sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things to find. I keep going back to what Bill Coors says about Rod Whitman. You, you have right. to know how to look. That's right. <laughs> and you, I'm telling you, that has resonated with me. Bill Coor talking about Rod Whitman. Sometimes you just have to know how to look. And sometimes clubs, as Bruce says, don't know what to look for. And if they're not willing to allow you to help them look, then you just have to look the other way. Pardon that that pun. And <laughs> and Bruce's idea that 80 to 85% of, of the presentation of the golf course is just in mowing, that doesn't cost much. He has done that very well. And what else could you ask for? I've never asked you this, Jim. Now in the, in the context of this conversation, I will. Are there particular styles of architecture or architects that you get a little more thrill out of working on their courses? Whether it's, you mentioned St. Charles and, and McKinsey, and you've worked on other McKinsey courses, Seth Rayner, uh, Charles Allison. Is there something that you feel, an somebody in particular that you feel an affinity to? Yeah, I, I do have an affinity to, I, I love McDonald and Rayner golf courses. I love the aspects of what they brought to American architecture. And one could say, Derek, one could say, well, he's done the Redan on several of his golf courses. Don't you get tired of that? And I would say I don't get tired of it because each one of his Redans were different depending on the topography and the land given to him. McDonald and Rayner I speak of. I do not get tired of McKinsey because one of the things that I found important in Alistair McKinsey designs is that in the bunkering, stay with me here, Derek, because I tell me if I'm gonna get a too too off base here. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> let you I'm gonna let the leash out a little bit. <laughs> Just tell me if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> in in a McKinsey routing, in a McKinsey golf course. What was perceived to be, at the time of the Golden Age designs, the second series of bunkers in the strategy have now become the first series of bunkers in the strategy. Does that make sense? You're just saying that the ball's moving so much farther down the fairway on the first shot that those bunkers now come into play, whereas they were second shot bunkers? Correct. Originally. And so, yes, they were second shot bunkers originally. And so you do not have to modify a McKenzie course as much as others because his second shot strategy has become, because of technology, the first shot strategy for some players. Not all players, but some players. And I enjoy the relevance of what McKenzie was doing because a hundred years later, it has now become the first shot 
in the series of how his strategies laid out in the bunkering. And I think, well, this is perfect. I don't have to do anything other than restore what he had. And then for the rest of the golfers, who I call the membership, they get to enjoy all of the benefits of a McKenzie course and strategy with the first layering of bunkers and then the second. But for that 1% of golfers who hit at a country mile, the second set of bunkers provide that same strategy. And it really, really allows me to restore the golf course in all its glory, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, give, can you give us an example of, of where uh, somebody could encounter this? Where is there a golf course or a, a specific hole that illustrates this principle the best? Oh, for sure. Uh, Pasa Tempo, mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when you go to Pasa Tempo and, and you go to the second hole at Pasa Tempo or or the or the fourth hole at Pasa Tempo, or <laughs> I'll just go on and on and on. The second series of bunkers at Pasa Temple on the second hole downhill has provided all of the interest that anyone could ask ask for in in a golfer who has that ability to drive a 280, 290, and then uh, the ball is bounding and running down the fairway, and all those little intricacies of the second shot that McKenzie thought about have become the first shot that one could encounter. And I think to myself, Justin Mandon, the superintendent of Posse Temple, keeps the ground running firm and fast, and it serves all of the purposes that you would think that you would have to remodel a golf course completely to, to, to challenge all levels of players. McKenzie golf courses, just by restoring them, still challenge all levels of players mm-hmm. and that happens all over the place at Pasa Temple. If on the 16th hole, the 16th hole at Pasa Temple for a prime example, it's a blind shot up and over to one of the most famous greens that, that McKenzie ever built. If you drive the ball too far, you put yourself in a bad position. If you drive your ball in a controlled swing with the controlled distance, you're in position A. And who would have ever thought a crowned fairway would give all of the interest level to all levels of players and survive a hundred years of modernization of the golf ball and equipment? It all does that on the 16th hole of Pasa Temple. It's genius. It's genius. And yet we still don't think of the 16th hole as being a strategic value on a golf hole that McKenzie provided at Pasa Temple over and over and over. I, I think that also says something about McKenzie's ability to identify landforms that work. Bunker placement at these at many of his golf courses were dictated by the shop, but also by whatever landforms presented themselves. Being able to use ridges or, a, 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 as you said, a, a crowned area, being able to identify that in a natural setting and using it for a strategic purpose. And for Bruce and his ability to work on the clubs that he's worked at, all you need to do is know how to look for it and don't simply add a bunker or simply add uh, a fairway mowing contour that would negate that strategy. And that's why sometimes I believe that Bruce feels it's not worth that effort. 
he would love to help you. He has shown that he loves that simple that simplicity of mowing presentations to help you realize the, the full potential. But if you don't know how to look for it and you don't know how to, I guess, gather the, the momentum to to reimagine it and, and bring it back to restoration, then sometimes you just raise your hands and say, you know, I'll, I'll just move on and, and go to a club that, that would like to explore what they have. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's a tough one. It's by, a tough one. <laughs> by the way, what what are some of your favorite Redan holes? Well, obviously North Berwick being number one, the National being number two, Yeamans Hall being number three. Uh, I like Shinnecock's number seven. Uh, that would be on, on my top of my list. You know, Tilling has uh, at Somerset Hills. I love that, Redan. Mm-hmm. They were all really good golf holes put in the right position at the right time in the in the routing. And I enjoy everything that they offer, and including the reverse Redan at St. Louis Country Club as being one of Rainer's uh, and McDonald's uh, uh, ideal holes. I enjoy them for what they are. Now, does everyone need to copy those? I'm not sure. But I can tell you that they do provide a challenge. And I think they're one of the mainstays in golf strategy. Do I need to put one on every golf course I design? Uh, I can tell you that on the, on the three of the layouts that I've done, for potential new jobs, two of them do not have a Redan. One has a, sim- a style similar to Redan, but you wouldn't recognize it as a Redan. It's it's the next level of Redan. And so <laughs> inspiration from that hole, I love them all. Some don't work as good as others, but I named them. North Berwick, the original, the national, Yeamans Hall, you know, they all have that spirit of adventure, as I say, Darwin gives us. And do we need to put them on every golf course that we design? No, but they sure are a fun one-shot hole that, that I wish more people could enjoy them, the Redan. I wish more people could get to really good Redans as well. They're often, they're mostly exclusive to a small segment of society. Which is a bummer. Which it is, is a, bummer. a bummer. Yeah, it yeah. sure is a bummer. And I and I wish more people got to enjoy that style. Well, you used used the word earlier, saying that Bruce Hepner was was happy to to work with some clubs and do what he does, and and, and happy to not work with others if it didn't fit. I will just say he seems like he's in a in a happy place. He seems like like he's in a good spot. He's a great guy to talk to, and it was kind of fun. T- to listen to you guys reminisce a little bit and and talk about what you do. He is in a definitely in a happy place. And I can tell you that one of the the joys of working for Bruce, and and I'm not saying that every day was pretty for Bruce and I, I'm not saying that we agreed on everything, but at the end of the day, you know, having a smile as all of the architects we have talked to, have said building that team, working together to create the 
genius of a design is paramount. And and Bruce May brought that that fun factor every day. And you know, he dogged me about my music. <laughs> he did, didn't he? <laughs> oh man, it was perfect. But you know, I sometimes I needed that that uh, that energy to get me going for the day or at the end of the day. But you know, Bruce always had that energy, always had that smile. Uh, it's it's infectious, and he seems in a very happy place. What else could you ask for? You know, I you know I should have asked for is for as we were closing out the interview to, for him to take us out on on a couple little guitar licks. He's a guitar player, and he had it going a little bit at the, at the beginning, and we should have asked him to bring it back out. We should have because you know him and Brian Slonick, they, uh, Brian Slonick, a shaper for Renaissance right. Golf Design, yeah. also also plays uh, uh, some music, and you know they would play their music and. and you could appreciate how they could go off on their own mental state, uh, enjoying that music. Um, I had nothing. To, I have nothing to offer. I couldn't haul my drum set around with me, uh, like they could haul <laughs> around not. their their guitars. But that would have been cool. He was so proud. It looked like a Fender guitar that he had. Yeah, um, I thought, Stratocaster. Wow, I, <laughs> I wonder how that sounded. <laughs> uh, turn up the amp a little bit. I'm sure Bruce would. Well, well, Bruce would have been like in uh, Back to the Future when he turns up the amp and it blows him across the room. There you go. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure Bruce would have done that a few times. I wish you could have got that on on tape, as they say. That would have been cool. Save it for another time. Agreed. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Man.